listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti, producer for Legal Talk Network, and the following interview took place at the Clio Cloud Conference in Chicago, Illinois. One of the privileges working for Legal Talk Network is that I get to meet so many very bright and talented people. George Beaton from Beaton Capital and author of New Law and New Rules was certainly no exception. Here's a little about George. Yeah, sure. I'm from Australia. Um, We run our consultancy across the east coast of Australia and up into Hong Kong. And we work across a range of professions, but our particular specialty is law. We've been researching amongst the clients of law firms uh, for the last 15 years, and we would know more in a quantitative and qualitative sense about client buying behavior than really anybody else. And, uh, of course, Australia in recent years has had the phenomenon of the deregulation of ownership of law firms. And in 2007, uh, a world first, the listing of a large law firm on the Australian Stock Exchange. And that's what I'm here to talk about. Now, as we all know, in the United States, only attorneys can own law firms. And so this is a controversial issue. But George addresses those concerns by first talking about the relative interest of other nations in this form of ownership over a law firm, as well as the protections that are built into such a law firm's prospectus. Uh, Before coming down to Chicago, I was uh, in Toronto meeting with people interested in this subject, Um, the Law Society of Upper Canada, for example. Uh, Fred Heaton, the um, person who chaired the recent Canadian Commission into the Future of Law Firms. And uh, this question is hot And it's going to become hotter because the evidence we have from Australia, which is what I'm talking about here today, is that since the listing of Slater and Gordon, which is the, it's a plaintiff's law firm, or should I more correctly say it was a plaintiff's law firm, at the time of listing, uh, they styled the firm as a consumer law firm. And uh, when you read the prospectus, uh, as in Australia, as in the United States, you would expect a a listed corporation uh, under corporations law in Australia uh, to have its first duty to its shareholders but when you as you would expect uh, when you read the prospectus of Slayer and Gordon prospectus actually referred to conflict of duties and it made it very clear that lawyers have a primary duty to the courts in Australia and a secondary duty to their clients and by inference a tertiary duty to their shareholders And the prospectus goes on to say uh, that any conflict of interest between the courts, the clients and the shareholders, uh, it will be resolved in a way uh, that is not contrary to corporate responsibilities or against the interests of shareholders, notice the house phrased in the negative, um, or against the short-term profitability of the company. So in other words, they're saying in the long term, by putting our clients first and our duties to the courts, which reflect the interests of the community and the clients, uh, the shareholders will benefit. So it's really long-term, the contemporary view of the duty of directors and, and corporations to shareholders. Assuming for now that the prospectus is enough to protect against conflicts of interest between the attorneys, the client, and the shareholders, won't the shareholders ultimately be able to dictate who the lawyers represent? Well, it's not clear. And how does that affect access to justice? More from George. Uh, There's been some pretty independent and well-conducted research into questions like, has this improved access to justice for these clients? 
have the triaging systems uh, resulted in them cherry-picking clients. In other words, when somebody calls in in response to the advertising campaigns that they've been injured, uh, it's Slater and Gordon trying to find those cases which will yield the highest monetary return and turn the others away to wherever they might go on the street. And, and the evidence is, no, uh, that the, the style of the triaging, uh, the response of the callers the destination of the callers, that they actually send people in a highly ethical way to the right place as they judge it during the telephone call, uh, rather than driven by a profit motive uh, as to which they try to secure for themselves. You, you know, you don't just take one study and say, that's it, that's proof. But uh, it may be to the contrary that there is positive evidence that it's, it's doing good. Um, and, and certainly there's still very large choice in Australia. Uh, we have about 70 firms across the country of size beyond solos uh, who do uh, plaintiff work. So, you know, the clients have plenty of choice. Uh, we've seen listed uh, about a year ago now uh, a firm called Shine, also a plaintiff's law firm. So now they've got competition and it will be interesting to see how competition plays out. Will, will, will competition result in, you know, behaviours um, in, the, in the contest for market share uh, that may, you know, raise the concern of those who remain against this idea? Building upon the prior points, I think it's fair to say that in the U.S., outside equity coupled with competitive market forces have helped our companies provide superior product offerings at competitive pricing. The question remains, will a similar model yield the same results for a law firm as it provides services to the client. And so there have been, again, independent research studies done on uh, client complaints. And do, do firms that are incorporated are more transparent and accountable in their governance uh, inclined to have more or less complaints? And for those complaints they do receive, how are they resolved? And the evidence is quite clear. Uh, they have about only two-thirds of the complaints on average that the traditional law firms have got. So clients are actually happier, is the evidence, as measured by their lack of complaints when you've got an incorporated law firm. There clearly is a groundswell of interest in this, um, not, not just from the business opportunity. In fact, I, I think that is the, the secondary interest. The primary interest, will this promote innovation? Will this allow firms to, to think about better ways of serving their clients? And again, if you turn to the United Kingdom, England and Wales, where we've had two and a half years of experience of outside investment, which has been far more vigorous than in, than in Australia, interestingly. Uh, again, there's some clear emerging evidence that the, the push that private equity has caused in innovation in, that, in, in England and Wales uh, is providing a greater range of services, more accessible services, not just, not just to consumers, but to corporations as well. Okay, up to this point, we've heard about conflicts of interest, access to justice, client satisfaction, and the range of services available under an outside ownership model. But where does that leave us when it comes to professionalism? And what is the role of an oversight body such as the ABA or your bar association? Here's what George has to say. If you are a true professional, whether a medical practitioner, a legal practitioner, or other, you put your clients first. 
you know, it's in the Hippocratic Oath of Medicine. Um, it's imbued, as you say, into every new graduate from a law school, a medical school, an engineering school. So it's a very profound calling. You know, if you go back to the origins of the professions, they were callings. They were, you know, they were vocations in which people went out to serve the deity if they became priests or their fellow human beings if they became doctors or lawyers, as in their health care or their rights. Um, as individuals. So you go back to those fundamental origins, you will forsake them at your peril. You know, I'm a student in my um, University of Melbourne academic capacity of a question that goes like this. Is professionalism still relevant in the 21st century? As you've just put it, in a capitalist society, uh, is professionalism still relevant? And and, and when you analyse it, uh, whilst professionalism is precarious at the moment... It's no doubt even more relevant than it was. And that's, in my view, primarily because of the Internet. If you or I had a serious medical condition, let's say we suspected we had brain cancer, you know, something truly life-threatening and frightening, you're going to find the best neurosurgeon you can and the best radiologist you can to make this diagnosis and advise you as a patient what, what should be done and what you should think about accepting as advice. And they will put you at the centre of the stage and you will be required to give informed consent if you consent to surgery, say. And you've gone to that neurosurgeon because of the information asymmetry. She or he knows more about the brain and brain surgery and brain cancer than you do. That's why you consult them. Otherwise, you'd go to a chemist and treat yourself. Yeah? You wouldn't try DIY. And so that's the origin of the profession, this notion of information asymmetry. You as an attorney, an engineer, a medical practitioner, no more. Um, and as the Internet has come along, of course, this asymmetry has been reduced. Uh, you just think about what we do these days. You're going to see the doctor, you Google it. You know, I've got a pain in my belly, you Google pains in the belly. And you can get advice from the National Institutes of Health or the, you know, the American Medical Association's website all over the place. I just know very well my daughter and her children. She's the absolute terror of the family physicians because before she goes, takes the children to the doctor, she sits in the car on her mobile phone, does her homework on Google and walks in there, you know, pretty well informed in her opinion. And so if you go back to this notion that you are entrusted by the client or the patient with giving advice, you are a true professional if you focus on that client. And so... No, you shouldn't litigate this. It's not in your best interests. I think there's an alternative, better solution for you. That's true client focus, patient centricity. Um, and it's keeping that forefront because if you lose that respect and if you lose that trust as an individual practitioner, individual attorney, or if you lose it as a, as a law firm, you're going to lose your place in the market. So I actually personally don't see any inherent conflict between profit motive and client centricity, and if you build, if you're running a business for the long term, which all of us are, at least the, all of us who are, are thinking so exactly, then you want to build a brand that's respected and trusted and is sought out for for wise counsel, uh, which is referred to by others uh, where people come because of the reputation, and you you're not going to get a reputation for trust and excellence in advice if you hit and run artist you know which is just take the short term profit and run on and look for the next sale you know it's the classic 
in the, I think in the old-fashioned parlance, second-hand car salesperson, you know. This is not to say regulatory vigilance isn't needed, that the bar associations don't need to be as vigilant tomorrow as they are today. But I think the mindsets need to change and the benefits of the innovation that this outside investment will bring need to be put front of mind. I want to thank George for stopping by during the Clio Cloud Conference. I found his views on this outside ownership model very interesting. I'm not sure, however, the United States is ready for such a change, given our long history of preventing outside ownership interests from influencing the decisions of professionals like doctors and lawyers. But it certainly gives food for thought when it comes to analyzing the methods we choose to provide high-quality services to our clients. Well, this has been another installment of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 